right. Farhan. Thomas. We got, we got a few people joining, but let's uh, let's just chat merrily between us before we really get into the heart of the show. Thank you to everyone r- coming into the room. We hope you enjoyed the Canucks trade deadline relative level of activity. It wasn't the busiest day, but some stuff happened. You know, honestly, I thought it was a relatively good day for the Canucks. They did what I felt like they had to do. But if but if I'm left a little cold by sort of the volume of what we saw, I'd say it's that I still can't really detect a big picture vision. You know, you, you can talk about getting younger players, but Travis Dermott is 25. I mean, this guy's been in the NHL for five years. This is not a very young player, and he's only got one year of term left after this deal. It's not like you've acquired an ELC defenseman with a ton of upside. Uh, you can talk about clearing cap space, but the net amount of money cleared, like we're talking about $2 million? <laughs> I mean, $1.5 million for next season, plus the difference between Mott and Richardson for this year. I mean, it's not a massive haul of cap space. You know, I sort of, I sort of put... 7.5 to 10 million as, as the raw number of cap space I'd love to see this organization clear. Uh, instead, it's 1.5, right? So that's that's far lower than my expectations. And yet, but you did know, you expect them to clear that at this deadline, or did you or when you were talking about that? I got the sense yeah. you were talking about that as a complete offseason project, not just no, deadline. no, no, no. I, I thought at the deadline, like when I wrote the article, what would a perfect deadline look like for the Canucks? I can't remember if yeah, I picked 7.5 yeah. or 10. I think it was 7.5 because I was trying to be realistic. Uh, but I picked 7.5 as like the number I'd love to see cleared, which, you know, if you'd also done one of your big ticket wingers and Halak, you kind of would have got there, right? You, you would have gotten into that level, even with the Dermot deal sort of eating into some of that um, committed cap space. So, you know, again, I think I'm left a little bit cool in that I find it a little bit difficult to detect the club's overall vision coming out of this deadline and yet i'm i think the mott trade is a good one like that the mott trade is the trade they had to make gentlemen like they had to do it and i don't think the return is as meager as some in this uh as some in this market are are suggesting i also do think and and one thing that should be noted is if you clear 1.5 million in cap space but it's cleared because you were able to move off of Travis Hamanick, there's an argument to be made that that's worth $5 million in cap space if it's cleared by trading a good player like a Besser or a Garland, right? I mean, the, the fact that they were able to get rid of one of those middle-class inefficient bets that they had on the books, one of, you know, the Pullman, Dickinson, Hamanick, Pearson class, and for me, you know, probably cleared the second worst of those players, right? You'd probably even, you'd probably rather clear Dickinson over Hamannick, I guess, but not by a lot, right? So, I mean, the fact that one of Dickinson or Hamannick moved is a huge win and sort of overwhelmingly punctuates, you know, what I come away from with a little bit, like I'm a little bit, I, I share to some extent the market's reaction that this was somewhat underwhelming. And yet, you know, mostly I come away from it saying, hey, they did the deal they had to do. They didn't divest at a price lower than they were willing to divest from, you know, some of those key bigger ticket items, which they still have time with. And, you know, they dealt a contract that I could never have in a million years imagine them trading away 
without having to take money back. And and I like that part of it anyway. Well, when I look at it yesterday, I you know, you get so excited. What? They moved down minute? Wait a minute. They've got to be retaining some of that salary. Oh, they didn't? Are you kidding me? You know, and so that kind of set the table. And it's probably flawed, much like watching the Canucks in the first two months after Bruce Boudreaux. You know, you get excited and that's a little flawed because ultimately your trading partner was the Ottawa Senators, right? So you can't look at that necessarily objectively like you would on other deals. And even today, people in Ottawa, uh, when they break down this trade, they're kind of wondering, well, why would you do that? And they're trying to spin it and talk about how Hamannick was really, really good with Hughes when really, you know, Hughes struggled last year. And playing with Hamannick, not Chris Tan, had a lot to do with that. So I think that kind of set the table for some expectations that, wow, these guys are pretty savvy. They were able to make that move and, and get rid of, you know, I, I think, yeah, between him and, and uh, Dickinson, those are the two worst deals in the books. I, I don't view Pearson in the same light because he's performing reasonably well. So I don't view it as inefficient, but big picture, yes, they should maximize that asset and not be spending that money for a number of other reasons, but he's not a poor player. Whereas, you know, Travis Hamannick and, and Jason Dickinson certainly have been and Tucker Pullman to a lesser extent when he was healthy. So, yeah, it was good. You know, I, I kind of thought you and I were talking earlier in the week about what the market could look like for a bot. And, you know, as we see what's happened in the last 24 hours and Mason Appleton and other comparables, you think, OK, fourth is a reasonable number. But you and I were talking about a second round pick earlier in the week. Right. Yes. And for yeah. Me for me, Sorry. I, I looked at it and thought, you know, I, I put a tweet out earlier that what does this weekend actually mean? for what the Canucks' aggressiveness level is going to be and what their asking price is going to be. So, you know, if they had won a couple of games and they're still in the hunt, then maybe you demand a little more for, for Mott and maybe you don't settle for the fourth, right? Yes, you want to move them, but you don't settle for the fourth. And now that they know that they're out of it. Yeah, I think that's probably... <laughs> yeah, Wallace wants to go out back. Um, I think you're. I think that's a fair point. I want to read this uh, message from Linus F. in the in the live room chat. And of course, for those of you who've who are new to this format, you're able to put your hand up, make a request, and we will eventually, once we're done chatting between us, uh, invite our VIPs up on stage to ask us questions and participate directly in the conversation. You can also take part in the chat with the chat function. I'll be reading a bunch of that. Um, <laughs> Sterling W says, let the dog speak. He's really upset. He thought Tyler Mott should have definitely netted a second round pick. Um, poor Wallace. Poor misguided Wallace. Anyway, we'll uh, we'll uh, we'll invite we'll invite our VIPs up on stage to chat. We'll also respond to what you're saying in the chat itself. So, um, I want to read this note though from Linus F because Linus F has nailed for me what is the biggest downside of the Canucks deadline day performance. He says Ducks with the masterclass on how to rebuild, turning Manson, Raquel, Lindholm, Delorier, and Curran into a 2022 first round pick, a 2022 second round pick, a 2023 second round pick, a 2023 second round pick, a 2023 third round pick, a 2024 second round pick, a defense prospect in Drew Hellison, Erho Vakinen, John Moore, Zach Aston Reese, Dominic Simon, and prospect from the Penguins. Yeah, I mean, that is <laughs> one big thing that the Canucks sort of have to be mindful of here, which is that, you know, as they had a pedestrian deadline, a team that's only three points back of them in the standings today has roughly the equivalent um, group 
of like high end young pieces on their roster today, right? I mean, I probably take Pedersen Hughes and Demko over over Troy Terry, Trevor Zegras, and, and Jamie Drysdale. But like not without thinking about it. You know, I have to think about it for a bit, particularly considering Pedersen's run of injuries here uh, and Demko's advanced age relative to those guys. So, you know, who are you betting on? Who are you betting on to be the more formidable side in three years at this point? Like, I know where my money's going and I don't want to I don't want it to be that way. Right. Like, I want to tell Canucks fans that they can expect great things from this organization. And while I don't think the Canucks like I think this was a probably one of the more successful trade deadlines we've seen from this organization in a decade. That's damning with faint praise. I don't think they've charted an aggressive or dramatic enough course to really give us a sense of a plan that we can buy in on the ground floor of. And considering the change in management, you know, considering how clear it is that they're going to miss the playoffs, uh, that's obviously not exactly what you'd want today. Uh, Harmon, how are you, bud? I'm doing well. How are you guys? Give it, give it, give us your take. What's your, what's your first blush reaction to Vancouver's deadline performance today? Yeah, I think the way I look at it is in terms of the level of activity, it was the bare minimum that I think this market would have accepted, but it's like within that bare minimum, we like the individual moves. So it's, we're kind of caught in that middle of you like the savvy moves. And I mean, for starters, pulling off that Hamannick deal and actually getting a third round pick back is, is straight up wizardry in, in this flat cap uh, economy. I'm shocked that a team was willing to take that on without the Canucks having to retain. Um, and obviously, yeah, the, the Mott, I think, return was a, was a little bit light, but I'm more just, I'm, I, I, I'm just more encouraged that they didn't go down the extension route there because I think in terms of a potential mod extension, it would have taken significant term and dollars. And I think this Canucks management at least realized that, hey, we should not be willing to invest um, a lot of term and, and money to bottom of the lineup contributors. So I don't really look at, like, when we look at the Mott decision and moving him for a fourth, I also factor in the fact that, hey, they didn't sign him as, as like, a potential bullet avoided. Um, they and, tried. Well, I don't know how hard they tried, though. Like, I think they... Tried very hard. I don't think they got close. Yeah, like, like that's that's kind of what I mean in terms of, like, they... I think they kind of drew drew a line in the sand of, like, this is what we're comfortable paying you. And that obviously I don't think was close to what Mott's camp was looking for, um, which is, I mean, like, with the last regime, guys, I would have been worried. I would have been worried going into this deadline if Jim Benning was at the helm um, and this management group, you know, had had shown that tendency in the past of, of committing term and dollar to bottom six contributors. And so, yeah, yep. the return, I mean... A fourth yep, round pick, no it's light for sure. I mean, I I sort of thought reasonably at a conservative level. I was sort of thinking third round pick, maybe if you're lucky, second round pick. So obviously a fourth is on the lower end of the spectrum. But then you look at the other names that went on the market. We we obviously mentioned Mason Appleton, who's a better player than Mott, went for a fourth round pick. Um, we saw uh, Cogliano for a fifth, Delorier for a third. Nemesnikov, yeah. roughly similar value, going for a fourth. Uh, Brassard for a fourth. I mean, that third round to fifth round pick territory was really the the market at this deadline for depth forwards, which is, I think, for Mott a little bit disappointing. But at the same time, 
Um, once you came to the conclusion that, hey, we can't resign him, you had to move him for whatever you could get. And the Canucks were able to do that. Hey, context, though, just from a, from a, you know, the fans look at this and you're the ones that come to mind, right? And we talked about this in the press room. Number one, Dan Hamhuis. And, and again, significantly different player. I mean, Dan Hamhuis at one point was the number one defenseman. And the Canucks eventually didn't trade him because they didn't want to settle for a fourth round pick coming back because of the precedent that could potentially set. The other one was Eddie Lack, because some are suggesting that, you know, Mott was overvalued in this market. And the definition of that, based on league perception and what eventually the club had to settle for, was Eddie Lack, right? You know, different positions and dynamics. But those are the, you know, to me, the, the fan comparables in terms of what Tyler Mott may have meant versus what he yielded, right? Um, the, guy, the name I want to get to you guys on is is Luke Shen, because Patrick Alvin was really, really um, strong with his praise and the value he put on Luke Shen. And you have to wonder, you know, there had to be some interest in Luke Shen out there. And I wonder what the price was for Luke Shen, because not only is it a really club-friendly deal for a player that's going to be able to help them next year again, but culture. And we've been talking a lot about what is in that room. And culture concerns this organization and its fan base should have for what's there right now. And there is a value. And we're not talking about ridiculous value that Jim Benning would pay $4 million over four years for, you know, they're able to get him for one and one for this year and next year at eight fifty. So it, it really is perfect for in terms of term and treasure as uh, as Drancer likes to say, you know, they really value this guy. Yeah. You, you could tell too how his, like his tone deepened, you yeah, know, I, yeah. I, I always like to say there's the, there's the, uh, I don't know if anyone's ever performed or been, you know, had an art exhibit or done something that was a performance with like a community troupe or a choir or been in a play. And after the show, if it wasn't very good, people come up to you they're like, that was great. Loved it. And their voice goes up <laughs> like a lilt. That's how you know that people don't mean it. When people come up to you and they're like, I love that. Then, you know, they mean it. And a hundred percent, there was no, he's great in the room. Like Patrick Alvin discussing Travis Hammonick. I want to thank him for his contributions. Like he was a great Canuck. <laughs> Patrick Al Patrick Alvin discussing Luke Shen. He's really important to our culture. We love him being a Vancouver Canuck on this young team. He's essential, right? I mean, the difference in tone could not have been more obvious, more more apparent. So yeah, I mean that you're you're right. That was probably the most that was probably the most forthcoming that Patrick was. In his post deadline availability, I thought, right? And that was where I think we got the best idea of who he is as a manager. And they love that guy. They love Luke Shen. No, no surprise. They were never going to move him unless someone knocked their socks off. And you can tell across the market, I mean, what, with the exception of Kulak going for a second and I guess Hamannick going for a third, you know, the prices just weren't there for a guy like Luke Shen to get the type of offer that the Canucks would have ever seriously considered, considering how much they like the player and the person. And then there's the other side, uh, Yaro Halak. And we're going to make a big deal about 1.25 in terms of, uh, in terms of carryover next year. How about Andrew Hammond? He is injured. Drancher Harmon, he is injured. He might play this year and they were able to move him and the Canucks could not move Yaro Halak. Yeah, I think it was, 
you know, for a long time, I'd kind of been sort of trying to gauge there was this sort of big debate about sort of in the, in the weeks leading up to the deadline, um, people speculating about would he wave, would he not? And I think the problem is just that Halak with his last couple of, of games there was kind of able to, he just kind of capitulated at the wrong time. And that is, to me, it was interesting too, because when a goalie like Anton Forsberg went off the market, in an ideal world, that would have been Vancouver's opportunity to try and, if Halak had kept up his performance, to shuttle him off to an Edmonton or a Toronto, who ultimately did not, unless I'm mistaken, end up adding a goalie. So to me, it's just horrible timing in terms of the way um, the way his season went, where he was strong and, and solid to start, but right at the wrong time when teams are going out and considering these goalies, you think to yourself, man, can we trust Halak? Because, you know, I'm putting myself in the in the position of a buyer. Um, I would not feel comfortable with with uh, with Halak as my backup, having looked at his last couple of, st- a couple of starts, especially if you're telling me that I also have to take on um, his his potential bonus carryover. Um, at that point, it's just it, it's just not worth the risk, the roll of the dice. And, and I think that's I don't know that if, if I were to guess, that's my bet on what ultimately hurt the most there. How much do you think what happened on Saturday night during the second intermission affected this? Because you need your number two goaltender also to be a certain type of guy in the room. And I don't know that Halak's necessarily had baggage previously, but, you know, he's a guy that came here under a different management team expecting to be a 1B. He turned into a clear two. And then his numbers were good until those last three appearances prior to uh, coming on in relief on Saturday night. Um, you know, and, and you almost felt like you could have sold that. That look, you put him in a different situation with a team that's not as permissive. It's only 1.25 next year. You know, we can. You know, there's got there's got to be a way. But then all of a sudden, he puts on a bit of a show, and it goes on Hockey Night in Canada. And now the narrative sort of changes that this guy is, you know, he's a character issue. He's he's going to be a problem in the room if you don't put him in the right role. Look at what he did here. You know, to the coach on the bench. Do you think that had uh, any effect on this, Thomas? It may have, but I think the far larger impact here was the fact that no one wants a backup goaltender who's going to cost you $1.25 million next year. Like, come on. To get a Halak trade across the line, you needed to jump through hoops, right? The comparison that I'd make is that the Canucks were put in a straitjacket and then locked into a metal box Houdini-style and then dropped off a bridge into a river. And when you're in that sort of situation in life, if you can get out, then you're the great Houdini and you deserve praise. You're, you're worth the price of admission to go watch. If you can't, well, it's not your fault. Who's getting out of that situation? Like, there's yeah, a reason it's incredible. Listen, they kind of did it to themselves. Now, first of all, obviously, Jim Benning and the previous regime signed the deal. But you had two bad starts or two bad appearances before you gave him his 10th and put yourself into that bonus situation. And then after that, you just don't play him. Like, the guys had one start since December the th- or January the 31st. So, to me, you can't have it both ways. Do you know what I mean? Like, if you if – you, play him in that situation and say, look, we're not going to be that team. We're going to do right by the player, 
right? And we're not going to prevent him from earning his bonus because we don't want to be viewed that way in the marketplace. So you do that, but then you don't play him anymore. You don't give him a chance to rebuild his game back up and you gut yourself of any value of the player. So yes, in terms of a micro 24 hours leading into the deadline, you understand the decision, but in terms of how the whole thing was handled, you have to believe there was a better way. Well, I want to quickly read this text from Justin M., who I hope is Justin Morissette, but if it's not, it's still a great note in the chat. Ultimately, it came down to a lock of suitors. <laughs> Very numbers. strong. Very because good. he was ready to wave. Everything we know, he was so frustrated at the end of all of this, he would have waved to anybody, including Edmonton. Yeah, in a perfect world, he would have liked you know, that bonus over to be rolled into an extension and to get another year out of the deal, but ultimately... He would have waived, but there was just no interest. It's a fascinating deadline, ultimately. And I think the I think the, the thing for me that I have to ultimately take away first and foremost is that Vancouver, I think, did pretty well in the individual moves. I'm just still concerned about two items as it pertains to this group overall. And I don't mean the management group. I mean the organization as a whole. The first is... I still can't tell you what the big picture plan is to get this team to contention. Like, I don't know what it is. I I don't know that we got, like, we saw some things that we can read into. We learned a bit about this management group's approach. Like, I think we can say now that carving out cap space was a priority, that young players, targeting young players between the ages of 20 and 25 was a priority. They delivered on that to some extent. And I think we can say, too, that when this group has time, they're going to use it, right? Mott went, but the guys they didn't have to divest from did not. And I think that's a huge data point in terms of overall philosophy. Now, that's all that's all well and good, but that's basically tactical observations. In terms of the plan, where this team is going, how they get out of this muck, I don't know. I still don't know. And we're four or five months into Jim Rutherford and Patrick Albion's tenure and it's kind of been cipher-like. It feels like a Rorschach test. You can see whatever you want in it based on what we've seen so far. And, you know, that's not a negative or a positive. It's just an observation. And and to me, to some extent, a, a bit of a frustration because, you know, I feel like with the moves the club made to not sign the Mott extension, for example, right, to at least sell and monetize Mott before he walked as a UFA. To do some of the things the Canucks did, it felt like it felt like the club put a Band-Aid on a wound, to, to quote, to steal Bruce Boudreaux's phrase from the other day, put a Band-Aid on, on a wound that really needed to be cauterized with fire. <laughs> you know, like, this, this is a team that needs a lot of work, and I don't know that conservative incrementalism gets it done, particularly considering not just the gap between them and the best in the Pacific today, but also the dark clouds on the horizon from a host of poor contractual commitments. The fact that there's really nothing of of high quality coming in the prospect pipeline and the fact that the Anaheim Ducks and the Los Angeles Kings have built the armies that Canucks fans have been calling for for so long. Gentlemen, shall we uh, invite the audience to put their hands up and begin to take some user questions? Shall we activate the interactive element of this live bandcast today? Let's do it. Yep. All right. So you can put your hand up if you're in this chat. And 
if you put your hand up, uh, we can invite you onto the stage. And once we do so, you can ask uh, a question, which we will then answer. And so we're going to get that started. I'm just negotiating with my dog right now. But I will take the first question from Colin L. Oh, Colton L. Excuse me, Colton, who is uh, who is waiting patiently. Hello. Hello. We can hear you. We can. Thanks for joining us. What's your question? Okay. Well, my question is, you know, looking back uh, to the beginning of the season when we got uh, OEL and, and Garland over in the Arizona trade, like if we were to do that again, I would say we should should not have done that. We should have just run out the contracts of the uh, Erickson and Eagle and Roussel, and then we would have had a ton of cap space to play with. And so what I think we should have done at this deadline was sort of capitalize on the strong play of, of guys like Miller and uh, and trade them off, get some picks, yeah, and get this going because we're not going to win with this current roster. It's obvious. So I think they were way too conservative. And this is a long-standing trend, right? We trade out first-round picks. You know, we traded first-round picks to get Miller. We traded first-round picks to get OEL. And as you just said, the prospect pool is pretty much barren. So we're, we're kind of just stuck in this cycle of mediocrity. So, yeah, I think we could have been a lot more aggressive in, uh, in trading away our, our valuable assets. Hey, Colton, thanks for your question. And before, before I mute you, I just want to say amen. <laughs> amen, sir. <laughs> well, look, I think we're all in agreement as far as what they did with Phoenix, right? I mean, none of us looked at that OEL deal and thought this was going to be a good thing. Even if there was a short-term bump, you know, we, we knew the contract wasn't going to age well, and now it's aging poorly immediately because of injuries. And, and yeah, when you look at it, and they could have been out from under those contracts at the end of this year, and where are they now? Because you're not going to build your defense around Oliver ekman Larson. Connor Garland's done some good things. But, you know, the production, I mean, ultimately 14 goals. Some of that is the fact that he's not getting power play time. But, you know, you wonder who he is and where he fits on a good team. I know that we liked that acquisition when they brought him in a year ago. But, yeah, it doesn't look good. And as far as the aggressiveness, you know, you look at the type of players the Canucks have. And I don't know that anybody, JT Miller notwithstanding, I don't know that any of those guys are viewed as guys that are really going to help you in a playoff uh, push, uh, a cup chase now. And in the case of Miller, because of the number of assets they're going to look to acquire for that contract, it's going to take time. And, you know, they've gone through this exercise of, you know, winning a bunch of games in these last two and a half, three months, and now thinking, wow, we can't, like, we can't let this guy go. But they're probably going to come to terms with the fact in the offseason that if you really want to do the surgery necessary – you just might have to. And, you know, and like I said, he might be the one guy. So I don't necessarily look at what happened for this deadline as gravely as others might, because I think the type of moves they need to make might take more time than what they have now. They got to really process if we're, if we're able to shed one of those two big defenseman contracts, you know, in Myers case, do we wait a year? And Ekman Larson, do we get aggressive and throw in sweeteners? Like they've got to really kind of you know, process which way they want to go on that. And, you know, you have to give this management team time to be here to assess and then to make those decisions. So it might be better served happening in the offseason. Yeah, I just want to add too. like, I feel like this week we saw the first real warning signs of why the risk the club took with OEL was such a 
intolerable bet, right? OEL has, to this point in the season, minus 10 days, right? Delivered a level of performance that I would say would be to the 98th or 99th percentile of all reasonable expectations for how he'd perform this year. He's shown up and for much of the season been a top 20 shutdown defenseman in the league. You know, the offense hasn't been there, but his two-way value has been sky high for much of the season. And yet, clearly he's battling something and his effectiveness has fallen off a cliff. And in this moment where the Canucks had a chance to define their season, he's a big problem for this team. And this is year one of the deal. Year one. His term lasts the length of Quinn Hughes's term, right? Like this, this is the entirety of Pedersen and Hughes's 20s will be sent, spent with Oliver Ekman Larson making $7.26 million. And in year one of the deal, we've seen him perform really well. And already I'm thinking about him the way I used to think about Alex Edler, where it's like, oh boy, I don't think it's going to be sustainable to play him top four minutes for more than 40 games a year, right? Which means he needs to be a third pair guy when you're a team with playoff ambitions, which means you need two lefties for your top four in a world where your third pair lefty makes 7.26 million. Like, how do you ever win like that? How do you ever win like that? It's, I just, I don't have an answer because it's the risk that the Canucks took on. We're seeing it sort of play out in a way that both justifies the bet or at least appeared superficially to justify the bet. And yet we're already seeing the degradation, the inevitable aging impact that is going to lead that contract to be a, you know, millstone that's near impossible for this franchise to navigate. I want to read a quick text uh, from the chat uh, and I want to turn it over to Harmon to answer this question because I, I thought it was a very sharp one. And I'm just scrolling up to find it, so I'm buying time, which I'm not very good at. But someone asked, and I'm hoping to find the exact comment, about the idea of whether or not this team would be best off shutting down Elias Pettersson. Um, Harmon, I'll find the thing eventually, but in the meantime, wondering if you might want to opine on that. What have you seen from Pettersson since his return from that two-game absence? And do you think with uh, their eyes on the long-term, uh, it's from Adam M., should Petey be shut down for the season and a good look taken at his wrist? Harmon, your thoughts? 100%. I mean, I, I've seen him playing in the last couple couple contests, and, and he looks completely off. And um, the, there, were, there, were, there have been a few tells. I mean, for starters, he's playing the wing instead of center, and, and we know how successful he was down the middle and finding his groove just before um, he was shelved for, for a couple of games there. Um, he's not taking regular face-offs, and I think the biggest sign is when you see him on the power play. And there was one play in particular last night, and I clipped it in the armies, where um, Hughes fed Pedersen at the right flank, and this was a sort of position where the shooting lane was relatively unclogged. Pedersen didn't even look up to see his potential shooting lane until he had the puck on his stick where only a wrist shot would have been possible. He didn't even look up, which to me says that in his mind, as he's accepting that puck there, the one-timer didn't even go through his mind as a realistic possibility, even though the lane was there. And we know how good Elias Pettersson's one-timer 
um, is, I mean, we saw at the end of the first period him kind of take one at the buzzer, but it, there wasn't really a whole lot of um, velocity behind that. I just, I don't think he looks like himself. He, I think he looks a little bit tentative using that one-timer. And to me, he just doesn't look like himself ever since coming back. Now, obviously, don't know the full extent of how he's feeling, and, and that's something that you'd have to sort of speak to him um, about and, and have an honest conversation. But to me, watching him, and, and I'm curious to get your guys' to take on this as well, um, I don't think, I definitely don't think he's at 100% watching him. No, I, I, I don't either. Um, Farhan, what do you think? No, I don't either. You know, and when we were critical earlier in the year, I think we understood the one-timer part of it. Right. But we didn't understand. Sorry, the sorry. Lack we, of were? we were. <laughs> I was. I was. Um, but, but hey, look, I wasn't alone. Not necessarily you. I mean, you gave him a free pass all the way through. Uh, I certainly wasn't willing to go there, uh, as I tend not to. Uh, and, and look, there was a time early on that you thought, OK, well, the wrist can take a little bit of time. And even he eventually, when he talked about the tape on the wrist and all of that, kind of excused himself for a period of time but even he himself didn't excuse all of those first half of the season struggles no, and attach it to the wrist right so for me i i would have excused the the shot all the way through what was what i didn't wrap my head around was just the complete lack of engagement and we're seeing that again right so that it's not just the shot but it's more like you'll go through you know at the end of the first period i looked over at jpat and i'm like have we noticed 40 at all today and we hadn't to that point, right? So so that's part of the challenge. But as far as shutting him down, I think both he and Ekman Larson should be shut down. But I just don't think they're ready to completely concede. At least the people in the room aren't. And, like, what are their options right now, right, in terms of who you're going to bring up? I, I Look, I would like to see Jack Rathbone. And I know his play has leveled off a little bit um, in Abbotsford. But I'd like to see him here playing on the left side in place of Ekman Larson, who gets turnstiled each game. And you you don't shake your head and laugh and think, what's he doing on this team? You just feel bad for him because you know he's dealing with an injury. So he, He's not really playable right now. No. So, so like, with, with Rathbone, let's see what he can do in a large sample size. And maybe he'll, you know, maybe he'll thrive here. And like I said, I know that they're not using him as much late in games in Abbotsford, but he's still their one defensive prospect. You know, Will Lockwood's name has come up as well. Uh, Patrick Alvin said he wants to see both of those guys really push to make a case to get some time up here before the season's over. So, yeah, right now, like, do it because these guys aren't giving you as much. And I know the exact play Harm is talking about where, it, it, you know, a slap shot opportunity turned into a wrist shot, which is, you know, not what he does in that in that space. So not when he's um, at his best anyway. No question. No, and this is this is the time to just. But here's the thing, though. One thing for, for me, I don't know a lot of people who have had serious back injuries and serious wrist injuries and have had surgery and been all good for the rest of their careers. Right. Like that's. Those are delicate things, and if he does have wrist surgery, like if that's what ultimately the club decides uh, has to happen, you know, you're talking about something that could impact them next year as well because that's going to take a long time to heal and rehab and recover. All right, let's go to uh, let's go to our next in the queue. Sean W., welcome to the stage. Are you listening, or can you hear me? I, I, I can hear you. Can you hear me? We can. Thank you for uh, joining us. Let us know what you want to talk about. Yeah, yeah, no, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Um, no, so I, I think I would just want to like preach patience. Like I'm pretty happy with generally what they did. The idea of just capitalizing on a ex- expiring asset is so refreshing. And and I get like watching what Anaheim did and wa- wanting the sort of level of aggression and 
and aggressive team building. But generally, my thing is I, I'm just going to reserve judgment until the start of next season. They had no compelling events coming up and where these assets needed to be capitalized, specifically like Miller, Garland and Besser. Besser, yeah. obviously, the RFA, but not something that needs to happen at the deadline. And, and just just generally, like if you look at the people that they were rumored to be talking with for any of these assets, it was all bargain shoppers, right? Like L.A. is not going to give you serious assets. They're going to want to buy low. This is, it was a bunch of violence. So you, I, I just think that there's a, a totally like believable and credible uh, narrative here that, you know, they really weren't getting value in any of the offers where they were trying to shop these assets at the deadline and that you're going to be able to create a more expansive and robust market in the summer, specifically for Miller. Like you could target Philly, Ottawa, any of these teams with tons of pressure to make dramatic improvements. Look at Vancouver acquiring Miller years ago, right? Trying to accelerate the rebuild. Mm-hmm. Like, there's just going to be a way, way bigger market, frankly, with teams who are more poorly run than contenders that are going to try and exploit you at the deadline. So I, I get it's tough to see like Lindholm and, and stuff go, but I just I find it believable. So so if you know, if next time, you know, like at the start of next season, if they've re-signed Miller and the roster is not that much different, like, yeah, I'll grab a pitchfork and I'll be ready to <laughs> like drive these guys out of town. But I just, I just don't think we're even close. We're even close to there yet. So I, I would just preach patience. Yeah, I love it. Thank you for your thoughts, Sean. Uh, first off, well said, by the way. Uh, you know, the, the quality the quality of our contributions here, the quality of, of those who raise their hands and, and have takes. I mean, this is not, this is not your average post-game show, uh, which is why being a VIP and, and having you guys, the support of, of everyone on this call means so much to us. Because I think that was a really, I think that was really well put and a vital point to make, which is that, you know, the Rangers, for example, pure bargain shopping. I mean, Vetrano for a fourth, a third for Braun, a fourth for Mont. Um, do we need, do we even know the cop return yet, Harmon? I think it ended up being, uh, ended up being two seconds somewhere. Yeah, in that one of them is like a heavily conditional first, right? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, you know, those were modest prices to pay for for what you can see in your mind's eye being like a pretty effective third line. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think the prices actually were pretty low. Even look at Claude Giroux. I mean, would would you sell JT Miller for less than the Chicago Blackhawks netted for Brandon Hagel? Like the answer is no, right? No. Yeah. With a bullet. So, you know, there's something to be said for drawing a line in the sand. And saying, this is our price. And if that price is not met, you stick to your line in the sand. And I do think there's a big shaping factor on what we saw the Canucks do uh, at the market today uh, that's dictated by that. And and I agree. I mean, I don't, I don't have a big problem. I would love to have seen... I would I would have loved to have seen more just because I don't think this organization in the hole that they have inherited, that new management has inherited. And, you know, I don't think they get out of it with a passive approach to team building. Right. I think it's going to require fireworks, but I am sensitive to the notion or the idea that the time to detonate, make moves, be aggressive may in fact be this summer and not at this trade deadline. So I, I think Sean made the point very well, and, and I agree with it. I agree with it through and through. I, I actually, there was a lot to like for me from this deadline, 
even if even if ultimately I think the full picture wasn't wasn't quite a match for for the picture I had in my mind of what a really successful or or as I put it in the in the column I wrote a couple months ago uh, a perfect deadline would have looked like Harmon Farhan anything to add yeah I think even just the Canucks themselves before they even really before the narrative even started about this idea of oh the Canucks are back into the playoff race and does that oh does that mean they can't move a piece like Miller now even before I think that conversation or narrative started to form this market I think the Canucks just felt that um there wasn't a big difference either way in terms of like they didn't feel an urgency to have to move him at the deadline I think all along they felt pretty comfortable with the idea of we'll still be able to extract full value, if not slightly more um, at the draft, if we decide to move him because of uh, how Sean mentioned the fact that your pool of potential teams that could be interested widens, right? Obviously at the deadline, the advantage for a buyer is that you're able to get multiple playoff runs out of him. But in the off season, you have, uh, you can cast a wider net of teams that are going to be interested because it's easier logistically with the cap. Um, I think a great point about teams like uh, Philly or, or, or in the past, a team like Vancouver that is desperate even just to try and get back on track in the playoffs. And you have more potential bidders there. So I think all along, especially after there was that initial wave of Rangers rumors, but it just felt like things started to quiet after that. And I don't think that, I don't think that teams really came came very aggressively with their best offers for Miller and offered the Canucks the sun, the stars, and the moon. And the Canucks were kind of passive and in, in, in that they in that they were sort of not taking advantage of the opportunities that were there. I think they that the that the market um, leading up to the deadline, at least up until this week, was pretty quiet on a player like Miller. And I think um, they've been comfortable all along with the notion of if we're if we're going to decide to move him, we don't have to do it at the deadline. We can extract just as much value in the summer. Yeah, I just got a text, by the way, from a good industry contact who was too busy to reply to me during the day when I sort of just sent the sent him my my classic fishing season note of hearing anything out of Van. Uh, so this is a senior NHL uh, like league source, like a high ranking contact, and and he just said all was quiet in Van all day. Teams don't think much of Mott. I mean, that is what it is. So that's apparent from the price that was ultimately paid to the Canucks for Mott. And one thing I'd add is you have to be happy for Tyler because he's such a good guy, because he's been such a good soldier for this organization, because you hope hope that he's able to hit a home run in free agency. The opportunity to go to a high-profile team with a chance to make some noise in the playoffs and, and a chance to be a key contributor, because if the Rangers make some noise in the playoffs, it's going to be on the backs of great special teams, counterattacking offense, and winning some 2-1 games, which is like the perfect environment for Mott to shine. I think there's a lot to like about this move for Mott. Hopefully uh, people, or hopefully the league ultimately comes around and uh, and gives him the type of contract that I think we're all hoping to see him sign, just because he's... You know, such a good dude. All right, we're going to go to our next VIP with their hand up. This is Terrence V. Terrence, welcome to the stage. Can you hear? Can you hear us? All right, Terrence, raise your hand again, and we'll pick you. 
Speaking of which, Joseph R., who we invited for, to the stage, but he was unable to get his question in, has his hand raised again. Joseph, do not have a strike two. Can you hear us? Yes, I can finally hear you. Perfect. What's going on, man? How are you? <laughs> nice to talk to you, Thomas. Sorry, Likewise. I switched to the Vancouver uh, or the uh, Canucks Hour the last time I tried to get on. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> I was like, what the hell? Anyways, I was just wanted to ask about... Uh, it doesn't seem like Bo Horvat is uh, really fit in the top six anymore. Because I just feel like Petey should be our center, obviously in the top six and not on the wing. And we've spent years trying to give this guy wingers to do something, and he just doesn't seem to be able to help anyone besides himself getting goals. So I'm wondering what are the chances of us trying to trade Bo? Uh, in the summer to address mostly our defense. Yeah, it's an interesting talking point. Thanks for your question, Joseph. Um, I'm going to give, gentlemen, I'm going to take this one really quick and just give my quick two cents on it. Uh, Bo Horvat's not a distributor, but he's still a centerman who drives positive results in a top six role. More offensive than defensive, despite the face-off percentage, which functions like the tail on a chipmunk, Right. Uh, Bo Horvat, because of the faceoff percentage, looks like a defensive centerman, but really he's an offensive second line centerman with with good PR. <laughs> the faceoff percentage functioning as the as the fluffy tail. Um, the thing for me with Horvat is that the description I just gave you does not apply to JT Miller. Right? JT Miller on a points per game basis is not more productive this season or in, during his Vancouver tenure than he was in Tampa Bay. He just plays a ton, and the entire power play runs around him. But in terms of his defensive results at 5-on-5, in the middle of the lineup, they're not great. Like, he's not the defensive player that Bo Horvat is, and Bo Horvat is not a great defensive center, right? So, you know, for me, Bo Horvat is your second-line center behind Patterson, and it's just that JT Miller is a winger currently playing out of position. Farhan, do you, do, do you dispute that? Do you agree with that? What's your take? No, I agree. And to the caller's point, as far as Pedersen playing the wing right now, that's true. Sorry, Farhan, 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 let me stop you. We, uh, we, there's something up with your network. We can't, we can't hear you at the moment if you want to try reconnecting. Um, Harmon, I'm going to punt it to you. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, it's it's interesting because obviously offensively at 5-on-5, five five, we, we've seen JT Miller continue to deliver the mail and, and do so many things for this club. But when you, again, as, as you kind of mentioned, look at the two-way profile, in 2019-20, which was Miller's first season, he was one of the league's most productive two-way drivers in terms of driving possession, driving chances, helping elevate um uh, aligned beyond just the offensive results and that and, and if you remember that year the lotto line was one of the best in the nhl now i think ever since you've kind of seen him shifted to center you do see um like, like i just think he's a better player on the wing than he is center he can play center perfectly fine but if you want to maximize his value i do think that he's a lot better on the wing than he is at center at uh, the end of last season it sort of did a study and one of the things that stood out was his turnover rate at center spikes a lot um, compared to when he's on the wing. And I think what tends to happen is, and, and this is where the team's performance has such a big impact on the narrative or, or perception of players. 
I remember last season when the team was losing and the whole narrative was Miller doesn't back check. He turns the puck over way too much. And um, he's this defensive liability and, and he was kind of cast in this negative light. And I think that part of that happened earlier in the season as well. But when the team started winning again, then everyone started to focus on, well, it, he's a first line center. And, 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 and I think it just goes in extremes. And like always, I think the truth is somewhere in the middle, middle where, yeah, JT Miller, he can absolutely be a top six centerman. I just think he's best from a two-way perspective on the wing. And um, we see that. I mean, last year, uh, towards the second half, he basically played the entire time at, uh, uh, at center, and his goals against rate spiked a ton uh, at 5-on-5. And this season, the, uh, his defensive impact in terms of the chances and the shots against have spiked a lot, too. Um, so again, he can play there just fine. I just, when you're looking at a team building an actual cup contender, um, he, to me is someone who I love him on the wing. Um, even though he could still deliver a ton of offense at center too. Yeah, let's see if, yeah, you're working. You sounded a hundred percent like Charlie Brown's parents, by the way, it was straight up like, yeah. Well, as far as Pedersen's concerned, you know, to the caller's question, Right now, he's playing in the wing for injury reasons, right? And they're trying to limit what they ask him to do. They're trying to limit the face-offs, the down-low presence, all of that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, obviously the organization sees Pedersen as a long-term center, their first-line center. And one of the things for Miller is I think they're trying to spread out what they have over three lines. And recall that Jason Dickinson was signed and brought was traded for and brought here to be the third-line and very quickly that experiment went awry and <laughs> they had to find a way to make this work, especially with Brandon Sutter. Farhan, you've gone you've gone you've gone robot Farhan again. I apologize, Farhan. It sounds insanely funny, by the way. Your your connection, honestly, what it sounds like is like you you're slurring your speech. So I'm not uh, <laughs> We'll, we'll, we'll get we'll, him back. We'll try again. I'll call back. Yeah, call back. One more thing. Have one another more thing beer just, far on Fred S. with the with the killer joke. Sorry. One one more thing I just wanted to add too is so going back to the point about so 2019-20 Miller's first year in Vancouver spends the entire year on the wing. The Canucks in that year with Miller on the ice outscored opponents by 22 goals at five on five. Yeah. Uh, last season split wing and center. The, the goal differential is minus 10. This year, despite all the do- offense he's, he's driven, it's, it's still in positive territory. They're plus four with him at five on five. They've scored 37 goals and allowed 33. But it's still not the massive sort of margin that it was in 2019-20. And obviously, goal differential isn't the only thing you, you look at. And, and in year one, he also had the benefit of the, the best version of, of Pedersen next to him. But I just think that you have to look beyond just the point totals when evaluating. And you look, and if you look at the most successful JT Miller lines um, in terms of just dominating opponents in terms of goals for and against, it's usually happened with him on wing as opposed to center. So again, he can play center just fine. I just think if you want to extract maximum value, he's um, he's a better winger, which may sound crazy to a lot of people. And I get it. It's not going to be a popular opinion at all. But that's just kind of what what I see. Yeah, I see it too. And and Sean W brought up the same stats: the the plus twenty two in nineteen twenty versus the plus three this season seems like a pretty compelling data point. 
I'm going to invite Max P up to the stage now. Max P, how are you? Can you hear me? Uh, hello, can you hear me? Hey, we can. Thank you so much for listening, for joining us, for raising your hand. Let us know what you want to talk about. Awesome. Uh, first of all, I just want to say that I love all your work. Uh, read everything you put out. Uh, thank you so much for what you uh, bring to the market. Appreciate it. Um, I just wanted to say that uh, I, I was, I'm super encouraged by uh, what we've seen from uh, front office here uh, at this trade deadline. I mean, just watching Alvin speak in these uh, in these last couple of days in his press conferences has been, uh, it's like night and day between him and Benning. I don't want to rip on Benning too much, but he's just like so articulate. It sounds like he's really thought everything out well. There's no quotes that you can rip apart on Twitter like there was with Benning. Um, and, um, I, you know, I like the Mott trade. Obviously, I think that, uh, you know, we hoped for a little bit uh, of a better return. But uh, the fact that the process was there, that they were like, okay, this is a player that is pretty replaceable um, in terms of like on ice impact. Uh, so we're going to do what we can to just get the most out of them uh, instead of signing him to, uh, you know, an inefficient contract. Is a, That's encouraging process. Um, and I was also happy they didn't trade Garland because I was pretty concerned uh, with the Garland trade rumors. I think that that's the sort of player on the sort of contract that you want to keep around. Uh, you know, like very positive uh, two-way results at five-on-five. Five. Um, and, you know, uh, same thing uh, with uh, points production at five-on-five on, five on uh, you know, a relatively inexpensive contract that, uh, you know, he's also under team control for the next few years. So I'm happy they didn't deal him, at least at this deadline. Um, you know, if they are going to deal him, hopefully they can uh, mine a little bit more value in the offseason and uh, perhaps, uh, you know, make one of those predatory trades with a team that uh, is a little bit overzealous with their uh, with their moves and, uh, you know, try to try to get like uh, an aggressive first round pick that uh, might end up being better than <laughs> might end up Love being it. better than the the team was hoping for. Yeah. Love it. Thanks so much for your uh, contribution, Max. Let's, uh, let's discuss this. First of all, I agree with you. I think Garland is a hold. I think if you're going to trade Garland, he should be the last of the big three to go. Um, partly because I think you can juke, juke his stats. Like he's doing all of this with no power play time. He's doing it despite playing, you know, pretty clear middle six minutes. I mean, I'd love to see what Garland could do given top line minutes and PP one time and then, and then deal him once his contract looks like a complete steal as opposed to just a good contract the way it looks today. As for the other question on Alvin's presentation style, or I guess it was more a commentary on Alvin's presentation style, he's extremely guarded in these media availabilities. Like, there's a skill to being a GM where you say a lot without saying much. Alvin doesn't have the saying a lot but he definitely has the not saying much down pat. He's, he's come very well formed in that, in that respect. And, you know, me and Harmon discussed it after he was finished today. We looked at each other and Harmon says, he says nothing, huh? And I said, yeah, he's very guarded. And, and Harmon said, I love that. <laughs> and I couldn't what kind of media but agree. Guy are you, Harmon? Sorry? <laughs> what kind of media guy are you? <laughs> well, we have Bruce. Bruce speaks enough for the both of them. <laughs> He's not wrong. Hey, Farhan, no, good connection. True. Yeah, finally. It H- sounded H- good. He finally agrees with me. <laughs> can you hear me now? Um, I can hear you now. <laughs> what, what, do you, what do you think about the Garland thing, Farhan? I'm curious to get your take on it. I think the concern... The, the lingering concern that I have and that I suspect 
the organization has is that stylistically, this is not your classic Rutherford player, right? It's not a straight line burner. He's not a big body, um, you know, goes to the dirty areas to score guy, although he does sort of live inside checkers. Um, do you have any concerns with Garland that he's not the type of player that you can count on when the going gets tough in the playoffs? Yeah, I, I don't have that concern, but I think if you were to move him right now, you'd be selling awfully low on Connor Garland, right? And I think if I'm not suggesting that he's a guy you're going to build your team around or, you know, will he ever live up to what we expected when he was first brought here, that he was going to be a, a constant regular uh, top six contributor. I'm not sure what he is yet. Yes, we like his work rate. You know, you wonder with the spin style who he's going to work best playing with. He's not getting enough power play time. So that's an, that's deflating his stats a little bit. So, again, I, I don't I'm not married to him. Like, I, I think that, um, you know, it's, a, it's an easy way to clear five million dollars. However, I think he's an asset that you could potentially profit from a little bit more than had you moved him at this deadline. Yep. Harmon, same question to you. Yeah, I just think you, you brought up a really good point of if you are going to move him, try and juke his stats first because he is in such a difficult environment where if you look at his 5-on-5 five five rate stat, um, even just in terms of, I think, this was a week or two ago, he's top 50 in the, in the NHL uh, among forwards for 5-on-5 five five points. So this is a player who gets all his points in, in the difficult situations and doesn't get the opportunity to really um, profit from the easy environment to score points and, and get his um, um, get his his overall point totals at a level that really pop off the page. Um, so that would kind of be my approach, and, and that's where even in hearing when a team like LA was reportedly kicking tires on on a Connor Garland, I just looked at that and, and I sort of went to myself. I can't imagine that the Kings would be offering a whole lot um, in terms of I think. The, the Kings, I, I, can, I just can't imagine that they would have been willing to part with, um, say, like a first round pick or, or one of their really high end prospects, um, especially given the type of shopping that L.A. was looking to do. So for me, if you look at a player like Connor Garland, you are, again, as you guys kind of mentioned, selling a little bit low. So for me, I'm kind of in the same boat where I look at him, the term that's left on his deal, the cap hit, and I just don't think that there's any particular rush to move him again, kind of like Farhan said, I'm not necessarily married to the player. If, if there's a trade out there with futures or, or with a, or, or for a top four defenseman, that makes sense. Then I think wingers are, I think the type of position where you can deal them and they're a little bit easier to replace. Um, so I'm not, I'm not in this camp of never trade Connor Garland, but I just don't think this was, this deadline was necessarily the right time to, to do it just because I don't think you would have been able to extract max value. I agree with much of what you said. And, and the other point to make is if you believe as we all seem to agree on that, some of Miller's production is inflated by opportunity, right? Then there's an opportunity to you to do the same with Besser and the same with Garland <laughs> before making decisions on, on, who exactly is your guy? All right, I'm going to invite David S. up to the up to the, the stage, and I want to know we we got to get out of here by about three thirty, so we're, we'll go about twenty more minutes. I want to get through all of the people who still have their hand up. There's six people currently in the queue. If you'd like to ask a question, raise your hand now. I'm going to cut it off at about three fifteen, and uh, and I'd just like to ask everyone still asking a question. 
just be mindful of the fact that go a little bit quicker than we have to this point, just so we can get to everybody. And, uh, and the three of us are going to do the same. We'll, we'll probably only have one of us respond to each question asked now, just because we we're so appreciative of everyone who's raised their hand and we want to get to all of you. All right, David S. Welcome up to the stage. Can you hear me? Okay. I don't think I'm, I think this is an issue on my end. David S. Yes, I got you. David, how are you? Okay, awesome. Um, you know, yeah, I, I just wanted to go back in Canucks history. And I, I wonder if you guys remember uh, the first press conference Mike Gillis gave after uh, Dave Nonis left. Because <laughs> this is way back in the day, but I remember Dave Nonis saying his last press conference, he got fired. The Canucks were close. All they needed was a few pieces. And then the very first press conference Mike Gillis gave, he came in kind of guns a-blazing saying, no. I don't think this team is close. And the second he said that as a Canucks fan, I was like, finally, someone who actually sees this team clear eyed. And I'm just wondering what I haven't seen that from this organization. uh, Basically since the 2011 team, any kind of clear eyed sort of just no nonsense talk to fans. And I'm wondering, you know, what would it take for you guys to think that Alvin and the management actually has control of the room? Cause it, I, I still wonder if the Aquilini family is not breathing down their neck in the back because um, they're just so desperate for playoff revenue. Like, what would it take for you guys to actually, because you said you're just really not sure about after this trade deadline, what the hell the team's doing. And it seems like it's just more smoke and mirrors. David, it's such an important point. Thank you for the question. I mean, if you're someone who looks at this deadline and thinks it's more of the same, well, how can it be more of the same when the organization has changed everything except for one thing, right? If this conservative deadline is reflective of a organizational reluctance to look at the long view that stems from above the management level, I mean, that is one possible interpretation for sure. And I must add, one that I find rather compelling in the wake of Vancouver's activity or lack thereof today. Um, Farhan, I'll take it to you. You've been in the market the longest. Your thoughts? Well, I think everybody has a right to be concerned, right? Because we know how, uh, how much ownership is demanded doing everything they can for short-term vision. But I, I also think that when they made the move they did this time to not only you know make the decision to change management teams, but they went out and got some credible people, right? I mean, Jim Rutherford's as good as it gets. And on top of that, they gave him the resources, right? I mean, when they first made the the move to to get rid of Jim Benning, we didn't even know if they were going to get a president, right? So it really is a bit of a departure. And I don't know that Jim Rutherford comes here unless he has a pretty clear understanding. Now, certainly when JT Miller's rolling the way he is and the Canucks are winning the way they were, yeah, it would be easy to get tempted but all that did to me was drive the price up. I don't think there was a no by ownership. You are not moving JT Miller, right? But I do think that it drove the price up a little bit. And I think that I don't think ownership needed to drive the price up. I think I think um, Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin understood what they had in their hands at that moment. That if they were going to trade it right then, so you know I, I think we're finally at that point where they're going to let these guys work. And we're going to see that in the offseason, because when you look at where we are, not just in terms of roster, but in terms of culture and what last year's offseason did and what happened last year when the taps got turned off and and just how that went into the room. Like, 
boy, I, that was all on ownership. Like every bit of that was on ownership. And, and I, I hope they realize it at this point and they're finally going to be in a position. And it took that same watershed. It was difficult for a lot of people to hear when you talk about the Dave Nona situation and Mike Gillis turned over or Mike Gillis took over because people really liked that West Coast Express team and thought that they were close, goaltending notwithstanding, right? Um, and Mike Gillis at that moment, it was it was early in his tenure, he was given free reign to do a lot of different things and make significant moves. And I think we're at that juncture now. I don't know that it'll always be like this. I can't tell you that ownership isn't going to dive back in at some point. But right now, it feels just like it did then, where the management team has more latitude than they've ever had or are going to have down the road in a few more years. All right, let's get to our next question. This is Dustin O. Dustin O, welcome to the stage. Thank you for listening. Do you have me? I think so. Do you have me? We do indeed. Thank you so much. And uh, shoot, what do you want to talk about? Yeah, I'll be fast because uh, I know you're on a tight timeline, so I'll forego the the nice compliments I was prepared to, uh, to give you three cents. <laughs> yeah, it's better for me to not hear them, to be honest with you. I just get more insufferable, So, uh, but I appreciate it. Yeah, so so I guess my question comes from a, a place of a bit of pessimism, I'm afraid. So I've been a fan for, for forever, um, going back to uh, dating myself, so back to the kind of the 90s, and uh, I've seen the team uh, be both bad and, and, and occasionally re- really, really good. And I, I'm, my pessimism comes from the fact that the team really does seem uh, constrained in what they can do. And I, when I say constrained, I mean the inefficient contracts that don't seem like they'll be easy to get out of. And so with that in mind, I'm wondering, um, I'm wondering, when do you think a realistic timeline for, uh, for, for this team being good again or, or having the flexibility to be good again uh, is? Are, are we talking like, like two, three years. And, and, and if it's, if it's that time frame, like how sober does management need to be with respect to some of the fan favorites? And I'm thinking about people like Bo Horvat who are going to be, you know, a little bit older uh, in three years and are on a new contract. So I'm guessing wondering, wondering for you guys, just what's, what's, what's realistic in terms of how and when they can be good and, and what's that going to look like to get there? Thanks. Dustin, it's such an important question. I know that me and Harmon have similar thoughts about this because we talk about it a lot. So I'm going to kick it over to Harmon. I think this is going to be Harmon's last question because I know he has to run just slightly before I do. So Harmon, what's the realistic timeline for this Canucks team? Yeah, I think we've talked about the fact that this is probably around a three-year project. And that's why I think there is such an importance of trying to once you do get into this offseason you're going to have to be uh really aggressive in in terms of selling and ensuring that you know we talk a lot about taking one step back before you take two steps forward well if you're aiming for a three-year timeline um you've got to ensure that you move on that quickly so that you're back on the upper trend relatively quickly and i think the other pressure point too is you want to ideally take advantage of the demco contract and um, he's got what four years left after this one, I believe, at, at around five billion. And, and I think Demko's presence also creates a sort of um, environment where, as a team, you're not you're just not going to bottom out, and it it helps um, for the upswing where you've got a certain base level of if you've got elite goaltending, well, that helps a ton. Um, and I think that's how I think that's how management kind of sees it as well. Um, is is kind of that sort of timeline. And you've also kind of got to be careful about 
this can't be too dragged out too long either because you've also got Pedersen's going to need another contract in a couple of years as well. And you want to ensure that the franchise is at least trending in the right direction, that there's a plan coming in place. And so I think that's kind of how I view it. And I think that sort of falls in line with, say, the timeline of contracts like the Myers one expiring and the Pearson one expiring. And I think that's and by, and by that point, too, when you think about potentially selling off pieces, like whether it's a Miller or a Besser or a Garland um, or even making a decision on a Horvat, um, the pieces that you would acquire in a trade like that, I think it's at, I think more likely than not, obviously, they prefer blue chip assets that be able to contribute sooner rather than later. But I do think that the hope would be that in three years from now, that whatever piece, whatever top prospect you're able to get or whatever pick that you first round pick that you get, that you maybe either draft a player or move that pick to to, to take advantage of an opportunity in the offseason from, from another team, that that's when that marquee piece that you get back from selling would really be sort of in their window to contribute at a high level. So that's kind of my view on on the timeline here. Um, want to just quickly read two notes in the chat. One from Corey B, who says the Canucks are two years away from being two years away, to which Rohan K, with just an incredible reference, comments, Bruno Canucks Capacolo, which, of course, is in reference to the famous Toronto Raptors draft pick who was always two years away from being two years away. Um, I just want to add on to Harmon's timeline that, to some extent, this is a little bit outside the Canucks' control. And, you know, I don't mean to be pessimist guy, but it comes so naturally to me. The Vancouver Canucks are number one in the entire NHL by save percentage, right? Now, some of that is because they have Thatcher Demko and there's 31 other teams in the NHL that don't. But, like, the Canucks had Hall of Famer Roberto Longo, future Hall of Famer Roberto Longo, and Corey Schneider as their backup. And... You know, they were second in the NHL by, say, percentage over a number of years. But even that team at no point was ever number one in the NHL five on five by, say, percentage, right? The Canucks are number one in the NHL by, say, percentage in part because Yaroslav Halak had, you know, seven quality starts for this team. Spencer Martin had three. Uh, even Mike DiPietro played really well five on five when he got a start. Like, they've done it through some odd circumstances, too. It's not pure Demko. And as good as Demko has been, and as much as I believe that he'll continue to be very, very good, being number one in the NHL by save percentage of five on five, that's not something that teams do year after year. This this is not something that is a consistent element of team performance that you can rely on. It's largely the result of luck, and it's ephemeral. It's volatile. So... As you're watching this team, as you're watching, for example, what they've done on this recent homestand, remind yourself that it all looks better than it probably should because at five on five, this team is sledding in a world where their opponents only ever convert 7% of their shots over the course of the season. And that hides a tremendous amount of flaws. It's not that, oh, they're only winning because of Demko. It's that the, the product of their five on five play is inflated in terms of the results, in terms of the times, the amount of times that you're watching the, them play and, and not yelling because the mistake has actually hurt them. Like, 
<laughs> that should be happening far more frequently. And next season almost surely will. So it's like this team could improve smartly with a host of intelligent moves by 5 to 10% next season. And if Demko's only very good, not outrageously elite, they'll be a bottom 10 team. That's just it. Like, that's the problem. So, I mean, the idea that this team should bottom out or shouldn't bottom out, like, it, it might happen anyway. That's how far well, look we're seeing, Well, look what we're seeing now, right? Look what we're seeing on this homestand. And maybe even the week before that, right? There was a period of time where Demko went from ridiculous to merely good. And they wound up outscoring that, right, for, for a short period of time. But eventually, what this team was is what we're now seeing on this homestand. And good goaltending wasn't going to be enough. They needed to be ridiculous. And th- this is what we've got. On top of that, how healthy is this team been? Right? I mean, oh, so you, can healthy, say that yeah. Pedersen, you can say Pedersen came into the year nagging with a nagging injury. Okay, I'll give you that. But by and large, I mean, we're seeing Hoaglander now. But this team has been healthy. They really have. You're right. It's an important point. All right. We've got two more questions. We're going to take them both. This one's from Terrence B. We tried him earlier. We couldn't get through. Terrence, do we have you now? Hey, guys, can you hear me? We can. Thank you so much for your patience and for raising your hand again. We're happy to have you. What do you want to talk about, Terrence? Yeah, no worries. So I'm uh, I'm actually a Toronto-based uh, Canucks fan, and uh, it's a nice change of pace listening to you guys on the van cast and not having to hear Austin Matthews this, Matt Marner that, just uh, Johnny <laughs> T with the Maple Leafs pajamas. Um, but one of the cool things uh, that I think is often overlooked in this uh, considerably underwhelming trade deadline is uh, the acquisition of Dermot, especially considering they were able to get Hamannick off the books. Um, so my question is, is how do you see Dermot being deployed for the rest of the season? And how do you think that's going to be affecting um, Rathbone and uh, the other defensive prospects in the system? Uh, thanks so much for having me, guys. Our absolute pleasure, Terrence. Thanks for asking the question. It's a very good one. Um, so here's what I would do. Here's what I would do with Dermot, uh, Dermot on uh, on day one. I'd put him with Tyler Myers, and that's my top pair. And then I'd play Hughes with Shen on the second pair. No change there. And I'd reduce Oliver Ekman Larson's minutes significantly, if not outright rest him. Uh, but but you know most likely play him on the third pair with Brad Hunt slash Tucker Pullman whenever P- Tucker Pullman is healthy, and that's my third pair. And I'm doing everything I can to make sure that Ekman Larson is ready to go next season, and then next season making sure that he's ready to go in game 50 because I've managed his load like he's Kawhi Leonard, right? I mean that we're we're on the Raptors train. And Kawhi Leonard's the name that I can actually pronounce as opposed to Bruno's. So I wanted to throw that in there. Um, that, that, that would be my plan for Dermot would be like, just throw him straight up top pair roll 22 minutes a night. You know, let's see what, let's see what they can do. And well, let's see what he can do in those minutes. And let's, you know, look to the future in terms of making sure that Ekman Larson's best hockey in a Canucks uniform comes in high leverage moments in years in which this team is seriously competitive which might be, you know, hopefully for this team, it's it's 12 months from now, but it might be 24. And I want to make sure that he's got as little wear and tear as possible at that time. As for the Rathbone thing, I do think there's a very real possibility that him and um, him and Rathbone cannot coexist in, in a top six with Quinn Hughes. Like, I, I, I think, you know, the good thing about Dermot, Dermot is that he can kill penalties, but 
you know, I, I do think it's going to be tough to ice the three of them together. And, and I don't think, you know, Harmon wrote about it in the armies. I don't think he was off in terms of suggesting that, you know, this probably isn't uh, the most full-throated endorsement of, of Rathbone's Canucks future. Uh, yeah, Harmon does anything to add? the right side. Well, if he plays the right side, then yeah, I, I mean, you can see it. But then I don't think you'd play him on the right side with either Hughes or Rathbone. So all no, of a sudden you have, you know, so all of a sudden you have a six. Right. So then all of a sudden you have a, a group of six defensemen that are not at all interchangeable. And that's not ideal either. Sure. Like sure. you want, you want defenders who can, if you have an injury, you know, like you, you don't want to be in a logic puzzle situation where, uh, this variable can't mix with that variable. Like you want guys to be relatively interchangeable. Um, so, you know, I do think it's a tough fit team building wise, uh, but that's just sort of, but, but to your point, just to give him heavy minutes, like this is a great opportunity to see what you've got, right? Uh, you obviously don't have to make a decision on McDermott for uh, an extended period of time, uh, Dermot for, because he's got, he's, he's an RFA at the end of next year's deal, right? So or at the end of uh, the final year of his contract. So, you can still wait. You've got some time, but no reason not to find out exactly what you have. Things started well for him in Toronto. He was supposed to be a permanent top four piece for that team or a fixture there. And then it, it kind of went awry very quickly. And for him, it, it's about opportunity now, right? So no reason not to give him that. You wouldn't even talk about playing him on the first pair. I agree with you. All right. We've got one last question. It's from Ray A. Ray A, welcome to the stage. Can you hear us? I can. Can you guys hear me too? We can. What's going on? Not much. I was trying to get out of clinic so I could ask my question. Uh, so I'm quite excited. I also realized this might be a dumb one. So no, no such uh, thing. Uh, Let's go. I, I wanted to ask you about something cap related. I know Halak wasn't traded, and they tried their best to do so. But is there still a possibility to trade that cap space before the draft or at the draft, or has a new league year started by then? Thank you for your question, Ray. Um, okay, so basically, no, you're, they're locked in now. Now that Halak has been uh, has remained with the club beyond the deadline, that's going to be locked in. One point two five million on their books next season. Um, the final, the league year ends uh, on July twelfth this year. But for cap accounting purposes, you've only got forty days until the playoffs begin. Once the playoffs begin, your cap is set, right? Because your cap is accounted for daily when you are in LTI the way the Canucks are you do not toll daily space and so the Canucks will have ended up spending because their final cap accounting will include um you know those guys in LTI uh the, the Canucks are, are that's going to end up something north of 85 million uh there's just no way there's just no way they can clear the requisite space at this point really the only way was to deal Halak and his bonus and and you know next season one thing and like the Winnipeg Jets moved Brian Little today at the deadline, a move I really liked. I think the Canucks will need to find a way to move Michael Furland uh, this offseason. Uh, you can't properly take advantage of the fact that you have Abbotsford uh, if you're not tolling daily space. The Canucks need to set themselves up to do so beyond this year. And that should be a priority move for this organization in the summer, particularly because Furland will only have one year and $2.5 million left on that contract. And there should be some value to a team that you know, wants to trade a salary uh, and is pressed up against the cap themselves. Um, you know, maybe it's a maybe it's a team like Minnesota uh, where, you know, that LTI space will be super useful because it doesn't it'll, it'll allow them to exceed the cap 
which they'll be pressed up against as a result of the Parise suitor buyouts. Like that's the type of move that the Canucks should very, very seriously uh, be exploring this summer. And, and for me, too complicated to do those types of deals in season, but that's a no brainer. Have to get that done this off season, you know, not priority one, considering all the other needs this club has to fill, but uh, up there in the top five, that's something you got to do this off season. All right. And listen, real quick, just a small digression here. Your former team, how the hell did the Florida Panthers find a way to be a cup contender, add big time pieces during this draft debt or trade deadline period, and still serve as a clearinghouse for contracts? I looked at the list that Frank Cervelli put out, and there were like seven non playoff teams. Of course, the Canucks were not one of them. And in Florida, like, how does that happen? Well, it's because Florida tolls daily space. They, they're not in LTI, they're relatively lean. And so because you're tolling daily space, your your cap space on deadline day is significantly higher. And the way to think of it is like there's face value cap space and there's actual cap space. And actual cap space is your face value cap space plus what you're accumulating all season long. So, you know, like last year at the deadline, the Florida Panthers had like 17 million in cap space. This year at the deadline, I think it was still like 12 or 13 million. Um, their director of hockey operations, Braden Birch, is, is a good friend of mine. He manages a tight ship. He's done very well there with a team that, you know, is is disciplined enough to pull off that rare balancing act. And amazing. Um, Just amazing. It, it, honestly, honestly, it really is. Uh, and uh, and and Braden Birch, not a name that anyone talks about in the industry. Like you I guarantee you none of our listeners have heard it before. But that that's a very sharp gentleman right there. And, and a guy who deserves a little more uh, credit and a little more attention than than he'll ever get or or that he'd be comfortable. I, I have, I have to believe he's with. one of Thomas Strance's industry sources. Uh, never. He is. Um, <laughs> the, I find I, I find that, that I find, we, though, that the, bingo. But, but the better the better the better you get along with people, almost the less you use them as sources, if that makes sense. Totally. You know totally, what I'm saying? Totally, you know, totally. like, I find that I don't want to. Yeah. You don't want to put them in. Um, you don't want to put them in odd spots. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting thing. Like, you know, Cam Sharon was at my wedding. He's a Toronto Maple Leafs R and D. He's never told me anything useful. He's literally my single worst source in the entire industry, but he's, but he's someone I hang out with on a twice weekly basis. So there you go. Anyway, thank you to everybody who participated. I'm honestly overwhelmed by the response to these. We love the format. We love getting a chance to chat with you, to engage with you. Thank you so much for joining us. After a reasonably eventful, but ultimately pretty, pretty slow trade deadline day for the Canucks. There's still a lot to unpack as new management puts their stamp on the team. Look out for articles from Harmon and I. We're going to grade every move that the Canucks made at the deadline. I'll have a column tomorrow with more of the behind the scenes on exactly uh, what occurred uh, for the Canucks as they made a variety of, of key decisions. So look for those pieces up at The Athletic. Thank you for being VIPs. Thank you for supporting this live format. Thank you for listening to the Vancast.